0: Hey, it's Luke Burbank. Welcome to LiveWire. How's it going? I hope you're having a good week. Um, where I live, we are just trying to stay dry this week. That is because something called the Big Dark has descended on the area. Yeah, that is apparently a real weather term. And what they're telling us is that the Big Dark is, it's basically one rain cloud that stretches from China to to the Pacific Northwest, if you can believe that. And it's windy and rainy, and you might even be hearing it in the background uh, as I record this. The good news is that things were very dry and very warm inside the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland when I stepped on the stage there recently. Uh, So let's take a listen to that. Our theme this hour is Tell It Like It Is all of our guests are experts at telling it like it is in one way or another. I had somebody tell me like it is recently, and it was surprising because it happened in a Joanne fabric store. I don't know if you have been to one of these places recently, but it's a very strange world in there. I am not a crafty person at all, But I go into a Joanne fabric store, and there's so much stuff that I get inspired. Like I'm like, I could reupholster all of my living room furniture in a polar fleece fabric that says live, laugh, love. That's within my abilities. I had gone to this Joanne fabric store Uh, Because I needed some help from them modifying a backpack of mine so that I could, wait for it, so that I could hang my skateboard on the backpack. Now, if you're hearing this on the radio and that sounds ridiculous, I wish you could be here in person to see how ridiculous that really is as a notion. Here's what happened. I turned 41 and the realization that best case scenario, I was about halfway through my life. That reality really started to sort of weigh on me. And a lot of dudes, you know, midlife crisis, they get a convertible or they get a younger girlfriend. I got a skateboard, (laughs) which is objectively a bad idea, but it did allow me to participate in one of my favorite hobbies, which is acquiring things as an adult, that I was too poor to get as a kid. This is why I own six pairs of Nike Air Jordans. Still in the box. This is why I have a Nintendo NES with Duck Hunt and Mike Tyson Punch-Out. I have basically become the coolest 13-year-old in 1989. It just happened 28 years too late. So I get the skateboard, but then I realize I don't know what to do with it because my wife and I, we live on a very steep hill. And I'm afraid to ride it in any direction from our house because I'll be going downhill really fast. So I come up with a plan which is I'm gonna take the skateboard on trips with me and I'll be that cool guy in the airport with a skateboard. Um, And then I guess I feel like people in other cities who don't know me will buy this cool new skateboard Luke more than the people in my hometown. Like as if I'll be skateboarding in Austin and someone will be like, who was that 19 year old? (laughs) But I gotta figure out a way to attach the skateboard to my backpack so I go into the Joanne fabric and the, the woman helping me is really nice, she's in her 20s and I don't wanna tell her what it is I'm trying to attach to the backpack. So I'm being really vague and she's kind of getting confused and finally I just go, it's so I can put my skateboard on there. And she she looks at me, not even with like judgment in her eyes but like legitimate concern. She's like, sir, do you know how to ride a skateboard? And the answer was not really. Um, she kind of was telling me like it is without even meaning to but I sort of realized standing in the fabric store, like, this is a ridiculous plan, like, to try to (laughs) recapture my youth via this skateboard. So I went home. I leaned the skateboard against the wall in my office. I would just, like, look at it every time I would go in the room. This is, like, a reminder of what a moron I am. (laughs) And then I was uh, reading this article in the newspaper about a guy who was, like, in his 70s, and he was diagnosed with terminal cancer, and he decided that he was going to train for and participate in the Ironman Triathlon. And the doctors were amazed because, I mean, the guy was really sick and and remained very sick, but a lot of his symptoms were abated by having this goal. And he was really kind of a medical marvel to them. And I was like, this guy's going to do the Ironman with terminal cancer. Like, I can learn how to skateboard, (laughs) right? Like, I got inspired. Because we get to write the script of our life, right? We don't have to let our age or our embarrassment or our physical abilities dictate that kind of stuff. We get to choose. So I started practicing skateboarding at my house in the hallway because we have hardwood floors and it's very smooth. And then my wife put an end to that. So I started going to this parking lot by our house and I would just skate in this like big circle. And like amazingly, after a while, I was kind of skateboarding and I can kind of skateboard now, which I have to say I'm weirdly proud of as a 41-year-old. Today was the big day though. Today was literally the big day because I got up this morning and I got the skateboard and I brought it with me to Portland. I traveled with the skateboard. I have it right here on stage actually. This is the skateboard. The whole thing was, like, leading up to this one moment that I was so excited about, which is when you get out of the airport in Portland, um, there is this really long... By the way, for the radio audience, I'm standing on the skateboard, and the audience looks terrified. (laughs) I'm not even moving. I'm just standing. I, I got to this part of the Portland airport where you have this really long, flat, smooth, cement like a sidewalk kind of thing between the airport and where you get picked up by the rideshare cars. And I got out there and I put the skateboard down and I was really nervous (laughs) because there was like a lot of people and also I don't know how to stop yet. (laughs) That's not even a joke. I literally don't really know how to stop. And I like put one foot kind of gingerly on the skateboard and I pushed off. And all of a sudden I was just gliding along this sidewalk, like going past everybody, just like this humdrum life of their regular luggage and not having skateboards. (laughs) And I was just like, this is amazing. This is exactly how I thought it was gonna be to be skateboard dude at the airport. (laughs) And my dream was realized for roughly seven seconds. (laughs) That is when a security guard from the airport appeared basically out of nowhere, an older dude, And he stopped me. He was like, you can't skateboard. You're not allowed to skateboard at the airport. But I wasn't even bummed out because of what he said next. He said, yeah, we have a lot of people like you. A lot of younger people that try to skateboard here. (laughs) And I was like, "Uh, could you repeat that? That's what I thought. Still young. So I'm feeling really great. I think we're going to have a great show. Let's get to it, everybody. Our first guest has been telling it like it is for years in film and television. Oftentimes, he was telling an undead creature that he was about to chop it in half with his modified chainsaw arm. Look, we've all been there. He's also a writer, a director, and a producer, maybe best known for his role of Ash in the Evil Dead franchise. His latest book is amazing. It's called Hail to the Chin. Please welcome the delightful Bruce Campbell to Livewire. Bruce, welcome to the program. Thank you. This book that that you recently put out, Hail to the Chin, is such a great read, and it, it covers a lot of really exciting and interesting moments in your career. I have to say, I was most taken by the chapter about you trying to get phone service installed outside of Medford, Oregon, at your house. Yeah, U.S. West. U.S. Worst.
2: I put it in because everybody has had crappy-ass phone service, phone installation, can't get anyone on the phone. We're going to install between 8 and 12, and then 8 and 12 goes away. Oh, we didn't mean 8 and 12. We didn't mean that 8 and 12. (laughs) So, yeah, I felt it was important to harass and embarrass a large corporation on behalf of everybody else who's had crappy-ass phone service.
0: I thought it was... I thought it was very humanizing to know that even Bruce Campbell has those kinds of frustrating conversations. It was the worst ever. Now,
2: now I make phone calls through my wireless, from satellite, from my hilltop. So,
0: suck it, U.S. Worst. I'm not even sure that's a company anymore, so I think we're safe making fun of them. Um, You and your wife moved from L.A. to Oregon and to the kind of rural part of Oregon, how many years ago? Uh, 20 next year, so 19 years ago. Yeah, a long time ago. What was the biggest change for you? What, was the, what, was, what were you not expecting about going from Hollywood well, to here, outside of Medford? Well, here's what started
2: the whole conversation was why nobody makes movies in L.A. anymore. The year before we moved out, we did column A and a column B. 70% of where I worked was outside of L.A. I'm like, well, then we're leaving. We're leaving the city immediately. I would have never lived there otherwise. Were you really landing...
0: When you saw the, the, like, the, the layer of smog? Yeah, we had, and- we
2: had gone away on a trip. We came back to L.A., and it was one of these days later in the afternoon where you could not attribute the haze to a marine layer. <laughs> this is pure orange, disgusting smog. and we, The jet just came right down through the thickest part of it. We shook hands to get out of there within five years, and we were gone within a year. Because it's like buying a Ford pickup truck. If you go, I need to buy a Ford pickup truck, that's all you see on the road are Ford pickup trucks. It was like that. Once we decided to move, we were like, well, then why are we waiting? So So Medford is the Ford pickup trucks of cities. Yeah, it's also called Methford, so,
0: you know. (laughs) Yeah. That is a perfect place for us to take a very quick break. We have Bruce Campbell here. His new book is Hail to the Chin. This is Livewire from PRI. We will be right back. Livewire gets support from Fully. You know, scientists are starting to figure out that pretty much every single thing we did in the 1950s, stuff that was considered normal and healthy, uh, was not normal and healthy. It was kind of making us sick, making us unhealthy. Cigarettes, BB guns, TV dinners. Don't even get me started on lawn darts. The history of becoming healthy is basically a slow dismantling of the 1950s piece by piece. The latest target, the traditional office desk. Sitting behind one all day is very, very bad for you. Like, you've probably noticed this. It feels bad after a whole day of doing that. And that is why we at LiveWire, whether it's LiveWire offices or when I'm on stage hosting LiveWire, it's why we use sit-stand desks provided by the wonderful folks at Fully. Fully is the Portland, Oregon company that has been making and distributing amazing furniture that keeps you productive, but also engaged for years. Fully knows this stuff better than just about anybody else out there. And they've been great supporters of Livewire. We really appreciate it. I'll tell you when I appreciate it, a moment like right now when I'm recording this and I'm sitting on a TikTok stool that they sent me. I also use a Capisco chair that they're the exclusive U.S. distributor of when I'm at Livewire and I do need to sit down because, of course, we all want to sit down still sometimes. But Fully makes the stuff uh, that you can sit on that's going to keep you healthy, keep you engaged, and keep your brain active. To find out more about what they're doing, head over to Fully.com/Livewire. Welcome back to Livewire from PRI. We're coming to you this week from the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland. We've chosen the theme this week of Tell It Like It Is, and we got one of the best in the business at doing that, Mr. Bruce Campbell. His new book is Hail to the Chit. Um, Speaking of blunt talk, in your book you mentioned that you are no fan of the Lord of the Rings films. Yeah, that son of a bitch.
2: You know, Peter Jackson, am I mad at him? Not really. Not personally. He's a good craftsman at the top of his game. Made these amazing movies, made over a billion dollars. And I often get asked, do you like the Lord of the Rings movies? I go, no. Have you seen them? No. (laughs) Well then how could you not like them? Because Peter Jackson stole all of my horses. From Jack of all trades, uh, one season wonder shot down there in New Zealand when he was doing his Board of the Rings series.
0: (laughs) This was a
2: TV show that you were the star of. Yes. That
0: was filming also in New
2: Zealand. At the same were- time, unfortunately, we needed one black horse. One black horse. He bought... That son of a bitch bought them all. He bought all the horses in New Zealand, in Australia, Papua New Guinea. You name a country, he bought it from there. You know, he, his main horse he bought for $250,000. That better be Sea Biscuit if you're paying $250,000. Well... We got a horse. It was a, a swayback nag. They, I think his name was Widowmaker. Uh, you know, it just... Uh, yeah, so thanks. Thanks, thanks, Peter. Just suck it. Tonight, I'm just going to say suck it to everybody. Suck it, U.S. West. Suck it, Peter Jackson. Suck it. Because little people can make fun of the big people.
0: Yeah, it's called punching up. That's okay. Oh, I like that. Yeah, you want to be somebody who punches up, not down. Because then you're right in the nuts territory. Like, right? Um, you signed this, this new book of yours, Bruce, Don't Call Me Ash Campbell. <laughs> sure. Why'd you, why'd you sign it that way? Because Spock put out a book that says, I'm not Spock.
2: And then he put out another one. Well, maybe I kind of am Spock. And then by the end, I am Spock. It takes a while to reconcile all
0: of that. I'm not quite
2: there yet. Really? Yeah. And
0: is, is, I would assume that is the common thing people yell at you on the street?
2: Yeah. Yep. Yep. What's Even st- younger, younger, uh, younger adults who've been named after the character. Oh, I had a kid at a book signing. Threw a book down on the table. Sign my book. I'm like, I'll sign your book. I'll sign your book. How are you doing today? I'm all right. Sign my book. I open it up. It says Ash. I go, that, is that your name? He goes, yeah. I go, that's not your name. He goes, yeah, it is. My purse named me after your stupid movie. <laughs> so it can be very cathartic to meet the person you're named after un- unwillingly. <laughs> yeah, the kid was pissed. He was pissed. <laughs> and a girl's name on top of it as he walks away.
0: Huh. Um, uh, the foreword to the book is written by John Hodgman, who is a well-known writer in his own right, but he was a literary agent and he was your literary agent for your first book. He was a literary agent's assistant. He wasn't even a full-blown agent. No, he agent. sent
2: an email, oh, "Yeah, oh, I'm from this agency." Meanwhile, he's like looking around if anyone's like watching him use his boss's computer while
0: he sends this thing. So, sure, he was a literary agent. Well, he writes this really nice forward which talks about your relationship with your fans. Well, first of all, he calls you an incredibly stand-up guy, which, uh, which has been our experience as a radio show. There was a time a couple of years ago where you had a last-minute schedule change, and you wrote yourself the nicest email to our executive <laughs> producer saying, hey, I'm sorry, I can't make it. Like, nobody does that, and you did it, which was really kind. But also... Yeah, let's give him a hand for that, for manners. But also, that... What John Hodgman observed in, in, you know, long ago with you was that your connection with your fans, you seem to identify that treating your fans well and being available to them is an extremely important part of your career, an important part of you being a success. It also
2: helps people from going through my garbage. <laughs> because if you're mysterious, they'll do crap like that. <laughs> like, has anyone met Tom Cruise here in this audience? Nope. You will never meet Tom Cruise. You will I'm telling you right now, none of you in this audience will ever meet Tom Cruise cuz he's made it his life's work to never meet you ever. That's his decision, which is cool. But Tom's missing out. If you get out to conventions, he is. He is. See who my dad was in advertising for 30 years in Detroit. See who's buying your crap. What kind of crap are they buying? So It's, it's never bothered me. The only time to actually interact is at these Q and A's where we talk with folks. When I, in my formative years, I wanted to meet William Shatner, and there was nothing until the Star Trek cons came in. Now Shatner, he does
0: more cities than I do. He's in like forty cities a year. Him and Stan Lee. Can I ask a possibly impertinent question, which you are under zero obligation to answer? That's a hell of a setup, right? It's a great setup. At this point, have you made more money off of conventions than your actual acting work? No. That means you must have made a shitload at acting. No.
2: (laughs) No. Producing. Uh, Producing is where it's at, huh? Yeah, because here's how it works. Hey, filmmaker, we raised this much. How about if you make it for this much? Which is a lot less than what we raised. And <laughs> doing, doing the math, the producer gets everything that's left. Ah, because they can. They got the money, so shut up. I'm giving you most of it, <laughs> but not all of it, because i got to buy fancy cars and crap like that. So that's really where it's at. It's the golden rule. The guy who's got the gold makes the rule. So any actor, I get this all the time. Come on, actors. Oh, my God, I want to be an actor. What's your advice? Become a producer. (laughs) (laughs) What? what? Yeah, become a producer. The first Evil Dead. I'm one of the producers. I gave myself the part. You think anyone's going to give me that part?
0: I didn't know how to act my way out of a wet paper bag. (laughs) Do you... Do you enjoy the process of producing, or is it just because it's financially rewarding? No, I enjoy the process because that's how you protect your work.
2: Right. On Ash vs. Evil Dead, I can walk in and give the changes I want to make to the script supervisor for that day and say, hey, here's
0: what we're shooting today. Is that why... I've actually always been curious about this, why you'll see someone who's acting in a TV show or whatever, they'll have a producer credit. Is that... Because I'm like, they're not getting, like, craft services for people, but that's so that they can have more creative input?
2: It is. Uh, When a writer is on your show and says, I would like a raise, you go, man, you look like a supervising producer to me. (laughs) You're a supervising producer. Now they shut up for one or two seasons. Hey, I'd like another raise. You look like a co-exec producer to me. <laughs> oh, <Whoa. laughs> sure, and that's good for another couple seasons. So, this
0: is in lieu of money. <laughs> yeah, credits are everything. Um, why do you love the word groovy so much?
2: Uh, that is, uh, has nothing to do with me. When we first introduced the word groovy in Evil Dead 2, it was 1986. Sam Raimi wanted to have Ash say something that was so out of touch with what was happening at that time. This is the Ronald Reagan era. Groovy was long gone since about 1969, maybe 71 if you pushed it. So Sam wanted Ash to say something completely out of it and try and make that cool. So in 1986, Groovy was as far away as you could get from cool.
0: But it seems like you've adopted it. Your Twitter handle is Groovy Bruce. In this new book, you say, if you like the book, Groovy. If you don't, no refunds. (laughs) Are you That's our to... policy with this radio show, by the way, too. But are you trying to pin me into something here? No, well, I'm just, I'm, I'm sure just where... curious because, because it is an interesting word, and it seems like you've you have adopted, even if it started out as a thing for the movie. It's kind of part of is. Have you internalized any of that grooviness? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you're growing lavender in rural Oregon. I mean, you. Seems like some of the grooviness has seeped in. I would say this:
2: I'm groovier than I used to be. I used to be very Squaresville. I used to wear fanny packs, and I used to wear socks with
0: Birkenstocks.
2: (laughs) Yeah, that's how I used to direct my Hercules episodes in New Zealand, and the crew would mock me. They would all come out in their sandals and socks with their fanny packs. And I had had a string that attached my glasses so I could take it down and it would hang on my chest. So, yeah, there was a time when I was not traditionally groovy. (laughs) But moving to Oregon changed a lot. Yeah. It did. I, I gotta say, we, we can argue all day long about marijuana, the evils of marijuana. You can kill yourself in four hours with alcohol. Kill yourself dead. You can smoke a bushel of marijuana all night long in the morning, your lungs are a little itchy, your brain is a little foggy, and the Oreo cookies are gone. That's, that's the difference, that's it.
0: Words to live by. From Bruce Campbell, everybody, right here on LiveWire. LiveWire is brought to you in part by Whole Foods Market, with meat and seafood traceable to the source, whether it's farmed or wild-caught. Because finding out where dinner came from shouldn't feel like an episode... Of the Twilight Zone. Learn more at WholeFoodsMarket.com. This is LiveWire. Our theme this week is Tell It Like It Is. We asked the crowd here at the Alberta Rose Theater what is something that they need to get off their chest. This is the largest pile of responses that I think we've ever had <laughs> during my time hosting the show. Uh, Tristan said, uh, I really like the Star Wars prequels unironically. that's the thing that's happened so far this show that made you angry? (laughs) Like, that was someone's personal line, was the Star Wars prequels. Okay. Um, Rachel says, my whole head is currently covered in olive oil. No, I'm not a human breadstick. I have psoriasis and access to the internet. (laughs) We're all rooting for you, Rachel, and I'm glad you could get that off your chest. Uh, and uh, Karen wanted to get this off her chest. My fiance has been in Austin for a week, and I'm here enjoying an evening with Luke Burbank instead of picking up my fiance at the airport. <laughs> that is the most validating audience feedback that ever had on this show, so thank you. Here's something Dave needs to get off his chest. I am a mailman, and yesterday I got my hand stuck in a mailbox. Like, really stuck. It took me five minutes to get it out as I had horrible visions of firemen arriving with the jaws of life. So those are just a few of the things that the crowd here wants to get off their chest. LiveWire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines. Now, people may think Alaska Airlines only flies from cold to colder, but with 1,200 daily flights and 118 destinations, Alaska Airlines is a gateway from the West Coast to the world. Learn more at alaskaairlines.com. Our next guest is someone who knows a thing or two about telling it like it is. She's a co-producer of The Resistance, a quarterly political comedy show in Oakland, She's open for Dave Chappelle and Trevor Noah and has toured with W. Kamau Bell. She comes from a family of activists and storytellers and she mixes that background with humor and quick wit. Please welcome Corinda Dobbins to LiveWire.
1: Portland, how you guys doing? You know, it's been a while since I've been here. Well, first of all, you guys, Portland is very... Laid back, Thank you, ma'am. Sounds so much better when you say it. It's very Caucasian. I jumped into an Uber in Portland, and uh, my Uber driver felt the need to point out to me that we were turning on to Martin Luther King Jr. Boulevard. He was basically saying to me, um, This is the blackest thing we have here, lady. Please enjoy it. <laughs> I was like, Well, don't stop there. Do you want to show me, like, Coretta Scott King uh, Early Development Center? <laughs> <I'll> take it. <laughs> Man. So I'm glad to be back in Portland. You know, I've been traveling a lot. Um, and before I started traveling as a comic, I used to say things that sound good in theory, right? I used to say things like, I would much rather have racism be in my face. I don't want that passive-aggressive racism I get from time to time. Actually, that's the only kind I want. It's the best kind, I found out. (laughs) I was in Kentucky for two weeks. (laughs) I was staying in a very fancy hotel, um, and I got off work, and I jumped into the elevator at my hotel, and uh, an older white woman followed behind me. And uh, we were getting along fine in silence. And uh, (laughs) (laughs) she pushed the fifth floor, I pushed the sixth floor. But when she got off on the fifth floor, she turned to me and she said, thank you. (laughs) I was like, I don't work in the elevator, like what? (laughs) But as a black person, I had to do, I gotta check all the boxes before I said it's racism. I was like, what am I wearing? Oh my God, like she thought I worked in here. You know what I mean? And I said to myself, how can I make this the most awkward exchange ever? How could I do that? And I made up some random British Southern accent and I was like, (laughs) m'lady. Like she ain't even tip me, she ain't give me nothing. It's bad. (laughs) A lot of stuff happening in the country right now. You guys, you know how I knew Donald Trump was gonna be a bad president? Because I'm psychic. You know how I knew? And when he first got elected, he started asking all these random black people to come and talk to him about stuff they didn't know anything about. (laughs) Right? He asked Kanye West to come and talk to him about how to stop violence in Chicago. And I was like, that's a bad idea. But I can admit when I'm wrong, they came up with a brilliant plan. Kanye West is gonna design a line of clothing for every gang in Chicago. And the violence is going to stop because they're all gonna be too embarrassed to come out of the house, so. And even if they do venture out, it's kinda hard to kill each other when you're all just wearing various shades of tan. You know what I mean? Imagine being a gang like, look, we're killing anybody on our territory wearing antique alabaster burlap bone or shimmering sand. Here, take this color wheel. <laughs> the differences are subtle, take it. <laughs> Got a new first lady. You know, her career started out a little rocky. You know, they said she plagiarized Michelle Obama's speech. But I looked at that a different way. Um, I thought that that was Melania's way of finally getting Republicans to listen to what a black woman has to say, I think she 's an ally, you guys. I think we have it all wrong. You know, she grew up on the south side of Slovenia, so <laughs> which is kind of near the Black Sea, so I think <laughs> i 'm pretty sure she 's with us. pretty sure. Man, you guys, I watch the news a lot. I probably shouldn 't. A lot of bad stuff happening on the news. Uh, and we 've just had another mass shooting in this country. Just like, you know, we have them every year. You know, the numbers don't really change. And we're never gonna have like common sense gun law. So I think we need to approach it from a different way. We can make a smartphone with Siri. I think that we can make a smart gun with psychiatrist Siri. (laughs) Just ask you a few questions before you can fire it. Do you live in your mother's basement? Have you ever written a manifesto? <laughs> Are you a white male, aged 15 to 75? <laughs> My name is Corinda, thank you so much.
2: Corinda Dobbins, everybody.
0: LiveWire is brought to you in part by Whole Foods Market, who partners with farmers to help ensure no meat in store has added hormones or antibiotics. Because the words mystery and meat don't need to apply to this week's lunch. Whole Foods Market. We believe in real food. All right, our next guest is a singer, storyteller, humorist, father, actor, He's not afraid to tell it like it is in any of his work. His new book, Liner Notes, is a series of humorous personal essays on not always so humorous topics like parenting, relationships, and even death. He's recorded more than 20 albums. He's won a Grammy. He's acted in movies and TV. Please welcome Loudon Wainwright III to (laughs) Livewire.
3: I wrote this in 1971. I just want to say that. It's called Motel Blues. In this town, television shuts off at two. What can a lonely rock and roller do? Oh, the bed's so big and the sheets are clean And your girlfriend said that you were 19 And the styrofoam ice bucket is full of ice Come up to my motel room, treat me nice I don't want to make no late night New York call I don't want to stare at them ugly grass mat walls. Chronologically, I know you're young, but when you kissed me in the club, you bit my tongue. And I'll write a song for you. I'll put it on my new LP. Yeah, come up to my motel room, sleep with me. I'll put up a sign to warn the clean-up maid Yeah, there's lots of soap and there's lots of towels Never mind them desk clerk scowls I'll buy you breakfast They'll think you're my wife
0: and Wright III. Welcome to Livewire. Thank
3: you very much. Thank you. Nice to be here.
0: This is a, a really amazing book that you've written, Liner Notes. It's, it is uh, extremely personal and extremely honest, but I guess that shouldn't be a surprise to anybody who's been a fan of your music. I mean, that's kind of how you've lived your, your artistic and public life, I guess.
3: Yeah, I've, I've written about myself from the get-go. I mean, I mean I've My first record was in 1970, So, and uh,
0: I've been writing about what's happened to me ever since. This book, Liner Notes, uh, talks a lot about your family's drinking, and you also talk about how you were kind of a a little bit of a, like a pretend drinker, (laughs) like you'd go to the bar and kind of subtly pour out your shot, like you were trying to fit in with the these real hard chargers? Right. I,
3: I, I, you know, I, I, when I started out, I was in, in the, the clubs and bars in New York in the late 60s, so I was... I, I don't know if your audience knows who people like Dave Van Ronk were. <laughs> Dave is no longer with us uh, because he was an incredible drunk. But, <laughs> but I... I and, and, and you know... He would be honored he, by those words, Right. I think. He would. Um, although once I ran into him in a health food store and he said, we shouldn't be seen here. It's bad for our careers. It really happened. (laughs) Wow. But anyway, I used to belly up to the bar at the Kettle of Fish, which was in the Grange Village in New York, and, you know, play at being a drunk and and would order a shot of Jack Daniels with a Heineken back. And then when nobody was looking, I would kind of pour the booze out. And then, "Ah, I have another one.
0: (laughs) And then I would get back to what I was really trying to do, which was pick up women. Right. (laughs) And that's, uh, also, that's not an insignificant part of, of your writing in this book, and, and that song, Motel Blues, is like, it's so heartbreaking to me, because it's a view, it seems, into your real life, at least when you were writing that song, about what it was you were trying to accomplish by bringing somebody back to your, yeah. to your motel room. It's pathetic, wasn't it? Well, other than the obvious physical pleasure, what were you getting out of that? What, what were you seeking? Well, you know, I wrote that when I was in my 20s,
3: so, you know, full of uh, it, (laughs) piss and vinegar, sturm and drang, but, you know, you, you go out and you play for a room of people and they love you, and then you have to go back to the motel by yourself which is a terrifying prospect. And in, in those days, television did turn off at, at two. You couldn't stay up and watch, you know, Bill Maher. I mean, now it's like, uh, instead of come up, and come up to my motel room and save my life, it's come up to my motel room and show me how to work the Wi-Fi. <laughs> how do I open the window?
0: <laughs> so everything changes. Is that age or is that you re-examining your life and and your relationship? I mean, I'm just basically saying what you write in the book. Um, Mostly age,
3: I guess. I I don't know. No, I I realized that it was really unhealthy, uh, uh, misery-causing behavior for for all involved. And it also disrupted my family life. I mean, it destroyed marriages and things like that. But uh, it was a kind of a compulsion
0: and uh, I write about it in the book. We have Loudon Wainwright III here with us on LiveWire. His book is Liner Notes, and we're gonna have much more coming up in a moment. Hey, on this week of the LiveWire podcast, we would like to extend a special thanks to some very special members. Of course, I'm talking about Shannon and Michael Troyer of Portland, Oregon, and Jasmine Mosqueda of Phoenix, Arizona. It is the support of fine, fine folks like Shannon and Michael and Jasmine that help make LiveWire possible. So thank you so much to all of you. Welcome back to LiveWire from PRI. We're at the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland, Oregon. I'm Luke Burbank. Our theme this week is Tell It Like It Is. We've got Loudon Wainwright III here, uh, singer, songwriter, writer, actor. Uh, his new book is Liner Notes. You, uh, your father was a well-known writer, and, and you write in your book about his ambivalence about your musical success when you started to get some attention and, and had a song on the radio and was really coming together for you. And then what you write on the tale of that, which I was so impressed by because of your honesty, is you said you feel the same ambivalence about the success of your own son, Rufus, yeah. if you're at a show of his and you're waiting in line to go see him.
3: Yeah, when I, when, I, when I started to play, my dad was a famous uh, journalist. He had a column in Life magazine in the 60s and 70s called The View From Here. He wasn't a performer, but he was a known uh, uh, guy. And uh, so when I, you know, got a record deal and got some great reviews in the, in the paper, uh, you know, he would come along to the show, but it made him uncomfortable. Um, so there was an element of competition Three out of my four kids are, are musicians. I've got my son Rufus and his sister Martha Wainwright and my, my uh, daughter Lucy Wainwright Roach. So when, when, when I go see them, I'm proud of them and happy, but I'm also saying, hey, what about me? <laughs> it's pathetic, I know. <laughs> um, I'm going to therapy.
0: I'm trying to fix it. How do they feel about that sort of stuff being in in the book, like, right, I mean, your songs have have been about your family life and about them, you know, since they've been on the planet. I mean, you have a song um, hitting you about a time when when you hit your daughter Martha. Oh, uh, the, the, the song hitting you is—I mean, it sounds terrible the way you set that up.
3: But uh, <laughs> I, I've already come across as kind of a creep anyway, so. Uh, now th- that was a situation where. When, when Martha and Rufus were in the back seat of the car, and I'm driving, and they won't stop fighting with each other and screaming, I did that thing where I, stop it! You know that. So, but I did that, also that thing that I did it too hard, and I actually slapped her. And, you know, she was wearing a bathing suit at the time, so you could actually see my, my handprint come up, and it, I, I felt horrible. And... Um, so I wrote, wrote this song called Hitting You, which is basically just a description of losing it. And it's a song, it's one of my songs that people kind of go, um, which is great, because I love to get that reaction. That <laughs> <laughs> but um, interestingly enough, you know, I, I assumed that people would come up to me afterwards, if I was selling CDs at a show or something, and they'd say, Boy, I, I remember when my dad used to haul off and wallop me in the car. But it was mostly dads and moms who lost it, who, who lost it in the car and, and, and felt dreadful about it. So that was what that was
0: about. Many parents have been through that, um, and yet not that many people would say, yeah, I'm going to write a song about that. Yeah, I mean, really, like what... What occurs in your brain when you have an experience like that? To think, I'm going to share this with the world because I mean it's an extremely personal thing. Well,
3: again, it goes back to what we were first talking about this this tendency, propensity to expose myself and to write about what's going on in my my head. And i i just I just found that that situation and some other. You know, tricky situations that I've written about to be to be interesting and compelling, and the other thing is the knowledge that the listener, the audience, might have done it themselves, or or at least thought about
0: doing stuff, or made the same mistakes. Well, by the way, we're talking to Loudon Wainwright III. His uh, latest book is liner notes. Um, I guess just a lot of times people, even people who are songwriters or actors or people who are being vulnerable, they're controlling that image still very tightly, the part of themselves that they let out. I probably even do a version of that when I'm hosting this show. And so the fact that you would go there with your experience is really fascinating to me.
3: It's the way that I've, you know, I didn't harvest cotton or ride the rails when I started. I started, I sang about a a guy that grew up in an affluent suburb of of New York and went to a boarding school because that's what happened to me. And I, you know, so it was interesting to me. And then I've continued to just
0: write about what's going on in my life. Uh, your kids um, have written songs that have referenced you. I, I know Martha wrote one that didn't have a super flattering title about you. Yeah, we <laughs> can't really say it on public radio. Yeah, but what's the um, like? What's the feeling in your mind when your daughter writes a song that's basically "f you"? <laughs> it's like literally the title.
3: Well, again. Uh yeah when it's a song and you know it's it's out there it, it's, it hurts but uh, you know we have the the battle of the bands me and the kids sometimes you know we write about each other uh, and uh, and it's and we we even play together you know we perform together although Martha's song is not one of the songs that we perform <laughs>
0: what was the conversation like when you became aware of that song like then when well, was the next time yeah, you guys talked yeah.
3: I had heard the song. It's a very provocative, outrageous song, and I, I, and I loved it because of that. I like it when people push the envelope a little bit. Uh, so, uh, but I assumed that it was about some creepy boyfriend. <laughs> so we were doing a show. She was on the bill with me. She was opening the show for my audience in Paramus, New Jersey. And she walked out and did a bunch, did a, and I'm sitting in the audience, you know, being the proud happy dad. And then she starts, not only does she sing the song, but she sets it up. She says, I wanna sing a, a song that I wrote about my father, who's in the audience tonight. And then she proceeded to sing it. So Thanksgiving was tough that year. <laughs>
0: Do you, do you feel like you, you guys worked through that? <laughs> well, uh,
3: working through it as opposed to work through it. You know, my kids are grown-ups now, and I have grandkids. We're, we're, we're still trying. You know, there's, there's a lot of love, and we're, we're working on it.
0: I think a lot of people, they don't want to admit that relationships are a work in progress. They're either bad or they're good.
3: I have just the right song to sing for this. It's,
0: you do? Yeah. What's it called?
3: It's called... All in a family. All right. Shall I do it for you now? Let's hear it. Okay. Loudon
0: Wainwright the third.
3: It's all in a family that's no lie. Even stays that way after we die Leaves, branches, twigs on a family tree in the forest can be hard to see Mother and father are in charge And the brand new baby will loom large Brothers, sisters, uncles, aunts It's a family life, so take a chance It's a work in progress, can't you see And the why, wherefore is a mystery When the family fights they know next door no one wins in a family war. Then there's that thing it's all made of. Dare we sing that the thing is love? Love heals heartache and familial pain. And what family is not insane? Give them all a hug and a kiss at the wake, the wedding birthday briss. At the function, let dysfunction rule, No shallow end in the family pool. We gather for the holiday and pray for a quick safe getaway. No one so close, nothing so real. The smallest thing is the biggest deal. That so-and-so did such-and-such. How can you love someone so much? Forgive, forget, and finally see the forest from the family tree. It's all in a family that's no lie even stays that way after we die. You forgive, forget, and finally see when you get to hold the new
0: baby. Viva! Viva! That is Loudon Wainwright III here on LiveWire. His new book is Liner Notes. Well, all right, that is going to do it for our show this week. Thanks to our guests, Bruce Campbell, Loudon Wainwright III, and Corinda Dobbins. Livewire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines, Whole Foods Market, and Fully Hotel Accommodations, generously provided by Provenance Hotels. Robin Tenenbaum is the executive producer and co-creator of Livewire. Laura Haddon is our producer and editor, and Melanie Sevchenko is our assistant editor. Caitlin Kunkel is our writer. Our house band is Jonathan Newsom, A. Walker Spring, and Ethan Fox Tucker. Molly Pettit is our technical director. Randy Hastings did our house sound and recording. And our on-air mix is by Jason Powers. Thanks so much, as always, to Carlson Audio. Our Development Director is Lauren Masterson. Laura Harden is our Marketing Director. And our Operations Manager is Tim Harkins. Additional funding provided by the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation. LiveWire is made possible by the generous support of our members. This week, we'd like to thank member Michael Cousera of Chicago for his support. For more information about our show or how you can listen to our podcast or get our newsletter, head on over to LiveWireRadio.org. I'm Luke Burbank. Thank you so much for listening, and we will see you next week.